Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all well. Um, I hope a good number of you this morning managed to go to the virtual coffee rooms, uh, have a chat with a few other people. It's not the same, is it? But it is um, a way of connecting with one another. Well, at the start of my talk this morning, I want to ask you to cast your mind back to a normal gateway morning uh, in the normal coffee time. And we're all milling around. We're having a drink. We're chatting to people. We've got our lovely, wonderful welcomers on the door. Uh, perhaps you can picture uh, someone who's giving that welcome. I think of Alan Hetherington, perhaps, Manton, uh, Margaret Jennison, Phil and Teresa, different people who just give that wonderful welcome as we come in the door. Now, let's imagine someone walks in. And as they walk in, we can tell just from the way that they look that they are wealthy. Uh, perhaps it's their designer clothes or their designer accessories. Perhaps you saw the nice car that they got out of when they parked at Morrison's. Perhaps even they maybe look a little bit famous. And we give them a wonderful gateway welcome. And our connectors, I think they are the ones who are just behind our welcome door people. They say, oh, welcome to Gateway, come in. Let me introduce you to Caleb, he's our lead elder. Gather them through, take them in, say, Caleb, I want to introduce you to this new person. Can I get your tea or a coffee? You go and get them their tea and coffee. Perhaps you pick up the welcome card to give them on your way back. Maybe you speak to a couple of people on the way. Oh, you know, after this guy's finished talking to Caleb, it'd be great to introduce you. And you just do everything you can to make them feel supremely welcome. Uh, heading back with their wonderful cup of coffee and welcome card. And you head back into the main room. And then someone different walks in. Someone who actually you can smell before you see. Someone who's most likely homeless. Their clothes are ill-fitting. Their hair's dishevelled. Perhaps they're carrying with them their bag of all their goods, all their, all their worldly possessions they bring in. You give them a welcome, welcome to Gateway, and you tell them where to go and get their tea and coffee. And you step back and you just hope that someone else in the auditorium or will go over and say hello. And after they've got their tea, you say, well, perhaps you'd like to sit here and you give them a seat on the back row because you feel like maybe that will be better, keep them where they're not going to put too many other people in an uncomfortable situation uh, because of the smell. Uh, or perhaps if they don't really like it, they can easily leave. Now, I am pleased to say that I know that that would never happen at Gateway because we have an incredible welcome team. And I actually think as a church, we do that first welcome really well. But today we're going to look at a passage in James, which is highly practical uh, on this subject of favouritism, partiality, uh, and looking particularly at the rich and the poor. When I was preparing this, I was really drawn to a passage in Micah. Uh, it's a verse that probably many of you know very well uh, about ways that we may please God, really. And it's come off the back of a passage where he says all these thousands of sacrifices are not really what pleases him. And in Micah chapter six, verse eight, it says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Today I want to structure my talk around these three principles, 
Uh, I'm going to swap them around a bit. So to act justly, looking at James chapter two, verses one to four, then to walk humbly. And we'll look at what verses five to seven have to say. And finally, love mercy, looking at verses eight to 13. We need to remember in all this, this isn't about legalism. It's about the outworking of our authentic faith in Jesus. I loved what Simon shared last week about doing being not a root of faith, but a fruit of faith. It's not by doing that we become followers of Jesus, but as followers of Jesus, there are fruits coming out of seeking to be like him, seeking to follow his example and what the word has to say. So let's start with James chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Ultimately, the picture that is painted in these four verses, which is obviously what I've just done at the beginning, it's unjust. It's unfair. But there's, there's much more to that than this. This passage comes straight off the back of chapter 1, verse 27, which Simon finished with last week, saying, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, God's heart is for the poor. It's always been for the poor. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of laws brought in to care for the orphan and the widow, who are representatives really of those who are in poverty, because as an orphan or a widow, they wouldn't have had anyone to provide for them. They would have relied on the charity, the generosity of others. Of course, Jesus comes to emphasize this and to continue that theme of the importance of caring for the poor, something he also exemplifies. So first of all, by treating the poor man in a different way from how you would treat the rich is to go right against what James has just emphasised at the end of chapter one. But secondly, what actually is happening here? What is the focus that James brings in his picture? It's about our appearance. Because actually we are judging by what we see, are we not? And we live in a world which judges by appearance. Sometimes when I go to London for a meeting, I, I feel the need to suit up, as I call it, um, because I feel like I need to look the part. I need to look official. I'm used to working from home, so usually I don't really need to worry too much what I'm wearing. But when I go down to some of these meetings, I suit up. I make sure I look uh, like you know, the right clothes for the kind of meeting I'm going into. Does that mean I know anything more than if I'd gone in tracksuit bottoms and a t-shirt? Of course it doesn't, but we know that first impressions count and we know that the world judges by appearance. And if we want to be taken seriously, if I want to be taken seriously, 
I need to look the part. What's happening here is a judgment is being formed on the appearance, on the appearance of the rich man. Oh, he must do well. He must be even perhaps a morally good man because he has done well in life and he uh, is rich and, and we want to honour that. And the poor man, perhaps there's an assumption that he's made bad choices. And that is just judging by appearance, that old phrase, judging a book by its cover. But let's go back to verse 27 of chapter one. What did I just read out? Not only are we to look after orphans and widows in their distress, but we are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. The world judges by appearances. That's not what Jesus did. And it's certainly not God's way. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. This is when God sends Samuel to choose King David. And King David was the youngest son, the one that they would never have expected from this family. And God says these um, Samuel says these wonderful words. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. As Christians, we are called to mirror that, to look at the heart and not judge by outward appearance. The third thing in this first section about acting justly is that ultimately, is there sometimes a situation where we socially distance, no pun intended, ourselves from the poor? Because it's easier to chat to people like us because we think it might get a bit messy, ultimately because we think more will be required of us by going to talk to the poor man than the rich man. James uses some strong words. He talks about our evil thoughts. But if we are to face that, it is ultimately selfishness because we don't want to have to do more to reach out to the poor man. So we are to act justly. You see what the treatment that was given to the rich wasn't wrong, it was the fact that it wasn't given to the poor man too. And one of the most famous stories of favoritism in the Bible is Jacob and his favorite son, Joseph. And of course he favored Joseph, he bought him a beautiful coat. There was nothing wrong with doing that for the one, the problem was he didn't do it for the other 11 sons. And you know what, when there's favoritism towards one, it's at the expense of the others. So favoritism towards Joseph was at the expense of the other brothers. And ultimately that led them to sin, the sin of envy. It led them to plot to kill Joseph. It led them in the end to sell him into slavery and lie to their father about what had happened. Favoritism can be hugely damaging to those who, for, at whom it is the expense of. So we're called to act justly. Secondly, we're called to walk humbly. Verses five to seven, back in James chapter two. So James goes on, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him, but you have dishonoured the poor. Is, not the is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? 
Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? I believe in these three verses, there's an important warning on judgment. There's an interesting passage here about God having chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith. Now, that doesn't mean that the rich cannot obviously be followers of Jesus, but there is a sense in which the poor are rich in faith. I think one of the main reasons why that is true is because the poor do not have other things to rely on. When Nicodemus came to see Jesus in the middle of the night, he was a wealthy man and his wealth came from his name. And that is why Jesus asks him to be born again. It's that almost shedding off the name that he did have because that name brought wealth, it brought status and it brings security. Uh, ultimately, those who are wealthy have other ways that they can find security as well as God. And therefore, it is a huge challenge for those who are wealthy to be rich in faith because they've got, it's not impossible, but it is more of a challenge. Whereas the poor, often those who are living hand to mouth, and even in our country today, uh, there's a stat I was uh, reading this past week, one in five people have less than a hundred pound in savings. I ask you, if one in five people have less than £100 in savings, there's a lot of people who went on to 80% pay, which will have taken them into potential debt. And it's just wonderful that we partner with Christians Against Poverty so that we can step into some of these situations. But it just goes to show, doesn't it, that if you are poor and you believe in Jesus, he is your everything. He is the one that you totally look to to provide because you don't have other options um, to balance out to balance out. And of course, Jesus. Who was rich, became poor. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, it says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus only had one opportunity to come and live on earth, and he chose poverty. And we know that he was uh, in, a, in a poor household because when he was brought to the temple to be consecrated just after he was born, according to Luke, his parents brought two doves, which uh, if you heard Caleb speak a few weeks ago about the cleansing of the temple, you'll remember that those who were poor brought doves. And let's not forget that James is the half-brother of Jesus. So James too knows poverty. And that's, I think, why you can hear his frustration here. He's getting so cross, isn't he? He's saying, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? He's addressing the believers. He's like, but it's the rich who are making your lives difficult. And yet you favour them. You can just hear the indignation in his in his um, in his heart and in his words. But the other thing about walking humbly in terms of our wealth and and most of us living in this country will be in that category of being wealthy globally. Is a beautiful verse in chapter one, verse seventeen, which says. Every good 
and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly light who does not change like shifting shadows. Isn't it wonderful to know at this difficult time that our God does not change like shifting shadows? But we need to hold on to that. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. The reason we have the things we have is because they've come from God. And if we start to think we've earned them, if we start to think it's because of our good choices that we are wealthy, if we think, oh, well, you know, it's because of our education or because of um, just our wisdom that we have become rich, then we most certainly aren't walking humbly because God chooses to give all his good gifts. So we're to act justly. We're to walk humbly. And finally, we are to love mercy. Verses 8 to 13. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This all starts to sound a bit technical, so bear with me and we will work our way through it. So, verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. James here quotes Leviticus, but of course Jesus also emphasises the importance of this commandment when he talks of loving the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. What we're seeing in that picture that James shows at the beginning of this chapter is loving the rich man, perhaps as we would like to be loved, at showing him a lovely seat and being really kind to him. But then when the poor man walks in, we treat him completely differently. We are no longer loving that neighbour as ourself, which is why James says, if you show favouritism, you sin. He then talks about how if we break one part of the law, we break the whole. And there were a lot of laws when back in those times of Leviticus. Uh, and really, it was there was so much to keep, which is why it's interesting when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, I have kept the law. And you just think, how? How can you possibly have kept all those rules and regulations? But what James is saying here is by breaking a piece of the law, you break it all. You can't not commit adultery, but murder and say that you are keeping the law because you have broken a part of it. You break the entire law. Now, we know that we don't, that we can never meet the law and that that was why we needed a saviour and this passage just helps us remember this morning we can't do any of this 
we cannot do it without a saviour. And when Jesus came to die for us, we were undeserving of it. And he died for us in spite of our sin. He died for us in spite of the fact that we rejected him. We esteemed him not. I read a book called The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, which was written by Martin Charlesworth and Natalie Williams. And they do a fascinating study into opinions in recent decades of the poor in this country and how we've put them into deserving and undeserving, unaided by government rhetoric such as skivers and strivers. Uh, and the media waded in and they have done a lot to influence the way that we see the poor in the UK today. What's interesting is that they did a study on how Christians view the poor and they found that they were more influenced by the type of newspaper they read than by the principles in the Bible, showing how, what an impact the media has and taking us back to that verse 27, that we need to not allow ourselves to be polluted by the world. Let's instead look at Jesus. First of all, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount to a whole group of people. He teaches that we are to be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. He teaches us not to judge and that actually as we judge, the measure with which we judge, we will be judged. So he teaches in a group setting. He teaches in individual encounters like with the rich young ruler where he says to him, go, leave all your belongings, follow me. And it, that is what gets through and challenges the young man and he goes away feeling unable to do that. Jesus models it in the way that he reaches out to people. I think of when he went to, when Jairus came, the synagogue leader came to say, my daughter's very ill, will you please come and see her? And he goes, but on the way, he is touched by a woman who has had bleeding for 12 years and he stops to find out who it was. She will have been in poverty because of that situation that she was facing, ostracised, uh, on the margins. But our Lord God, our Lord Jesus goes out to the margins. He does still go to Jairus's house. The daughter's now died and he raises her from the dead. So there isn't favouritism towards the poor either but there is everyone being treated with the full encounter of Jesus, his care and his attention meeting their needs. And then there is a very famous parable, parable on loving our neighbour, and that is the Good Samaritan. And it is, it's that, well, I know I need to love my neighbour as myself, this expert in the law says, but what, who is my neighbour? What does that all mean? Uh, I'm not gonna, haven't got time to go into the parable now, um, but at the end of that parable, when Jesus says uh, that the, good, the Samaritan was the one who came and cared for the person, took him to an inn, cared for his needs. But it's interesting what he says, Luke 10, verse 37. Starting from 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go 
and do likewise. We are called to love mercy, not just consider it every now and again, but to love it. We have been shown incredible mercy because we have been forgiven. We have been brought into right relationship. Everything we have is a gift from God. And we are called to show mercy to others. It's not about whether they are deserving or not, because ultimately in making that decision, we have judged. In making that decision, we're perhaps judging on appearances or choices that have been made. But we are to love mercy. Favoritism contradicts God's choice. It contradicts God's law. And fundamentally, it contradicts God's mercy. And what's really powerful is that ultimately, if you treat the rich man well, like James paints that picture at the beginning, he's going to take that totally for granted. He's used to being treated like that. Wherever he goes, people rally around him. You think of someone famous, they're used to being treated as if everyone knows them and um, people serving them. What about the poor man? If we show mercy to people who the world shuns, if we show mercy to people that the world rejects, distances themselves from, imagine the transformation that we can bring. And that, I think, is why James finishes with these victorious words, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your incredible example. We need go no further, really, Lord. Your teaching, but the way that you lived your life. You acted justly. You walked humbly and you loved mercy. Lord God, we want to pray that you would help us to take on board James's practical teaching, Lord God, uh, where there's something that we need to just shift in our thinking. Lord, we pray that your word would go in deep. And Lord God, I want to pray that as uh, we move out from our homes in the weeks, months to come, uh, as we start engaging more with the world again, that we would take on board this radical teaching to look after the poor and to not let ourselves be polluted by the world. And Lord, we do pray at this time for those who are in poverty. We do pray for those who are in desperation, who are wondering where the next meal will come from. And we just thank you for churches up and down the country, churches all around the world, churches all through history that have been radical and reached out to care for the poor and needy. Amen. <laughs>